everyone wants the same thing. Everyone wants to be validated. Oprah was asked to reflect on her interviews. She said, every interview ended the same way. And it was, was that okay? She said, I could be speaking to a criminal that was behind bars. I could be speaking to the president of the United States. And it ended with, was that okay? Everyone wants validation. And if you think you're too small to offer validation to someone who maybe you think is unattainable, I would say you're wrong. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. TDW fans, we are excited to share our amazing guest with you today, Doug Shapiro. To ensure you don't miss Doug or any of our top voices in the future work, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and our YouTube channel. Doug Shapiro is the Vice President of Research and Insights at OFS. He has over 15 years of experience collaborating with product designers and interior designers from all over the globe. He served on IIDA's International Board from 2015 to 2020. He currently serves on the advisory board for Kansas State University's Interior Architecture and Industrial Design Department and is a published children's author. Doug is also the host of the Imagine a Place podcast, ranked in the top 1.5% of global podcasts, where he and the team have produced 143 episodes. That is amazing. Further, they launched the Imagine a Place Network to elevate top industry voices. Alex and I met Doug and the team last year and immediately felt like kindred spirits. We've had the good fortune to hang out with Doug and the entire amazing OFS team, and we continue to marvel at the unique way they craft beautiful spaces while creating a special human experience. Doug, welcome to TDW. I am super happy to be here with you both, uh, be, to be reunited with you both. Reunited. Us. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful to have you on the show. So let's, let's dive in. All right. Now you are an award-winning leader in your industry and you're focused on meaningful conversations, industry initiatives that move us forward in a more equitable and sustainable people-centric future, which we just love. Now, at the core of all these things is human-centeredness. How did your passion for human-centeredness in the workplace come about? Well, I can tell you my understanding of human-centeredness has evolved. So the passion's always been there, but I, I have come to broaden my definition of what human-centered design is. You know, it's certainly not a new concept, but inside our industry, the last five years or so, we're talking much more about it. And I can tell you what, what, I've, what I've learned is that human-centered is often too generalized, right? Because you know, we want to imagine the human experience. We want to design for a human experience. And you know, I'm a human, so if I design it for me, it should work for all humans, right? Obviously, that's wrong. Uh, but that, that is a generalization around human-centered design that I think sometimes we get in trouble with is we don't pluralize human-centered enough because the human experience is so variable, right? 
I really see the evolution of human-centered design being much more inclusive. And I've seen that change in our industry. And so that is something I'm passionate about, is really understanding human-centered design from multiple perspectives. Some good examples would be just thinking about the different way our brains are wired. So you know, you want to design a workplace where the 25-year-old who needs a really busy, lively environment can feel successful. But that 65-year-old who might want more peace and quiet, a place to concentrate, they need to be successful too. And so that's the challenge in human-centered design is designing for all those people so that, yes, you, whoever you are, can come to this place and do your best work. That totally makes sense. Let's stay with this human-centered conversation. We'll just take it in a little bit of a different direction from the HR lens. You've interviewed a lot of HR leaders on the Imagine a Place podcast. I'm going to call it IAP a lot from here forward. Folks like Andrea Heron, who is amazing. Thank you for introducing us or her to us. We had her on the podcast as well. David Ulrich and Reagan Donahue. And there's a lot of talk about reimagining HR for this dynamic new future, for this disrupted workforce. So thinking about those conversations, if you were to create a top five list for HR leaders going forward, what would make the list? Wow. Well, I want to, I want to answer this in, in, a, in a little bit of a storytelling way because I want to tell you about my history in interacting with HR. <laughs> okay. So, so HR, I feel like, has been, should have always been at this swirling center point of workplace design, right? It just feels natural, right? And to you as, an, as kind of an outside observer to the workplace design world, that seems like a pretty easy line to draw. It wasn't always like that. In fact, they were very rarely in the decision-making process. And I began to, you know, as I, as I began to understand our industry over the last 18 years, and we're always learning, we're always broadening our understanding of how place impacts people. I start to list these things out. It's like, you know, place can be key to a healthy day's work, right? Yes, place does impact your well-being. Uh, it can impact, great design can impact the sunlight that you get in a day, it can impact the sleep you have that night because of it. The, the materials that you surround yourself with, whether they reflect nature or not, can impact you. And then there's um, the, just the idea of, of how color and texture and things can, can create a sense of culture in a workplace. So culture, well-being, productivity, these are all impacted by design. These feel, these feel like these should be natural HR priorities, right? Recruitment, retention. People talk about the workplace as a tool for that. And so I decided to dive into SHRM, Society for Human Resource Management. And I'm thinking, surely they are talking about workplace, right? This is maybe 10 years ago or so. And I started digging into all the SHRM annual reports, right? And it was like nothing there. It was all compensation, conflict resolution, uh, benefits. And now, you know, you started to see things more on DEI, which is fantastic. And these are all very important subjects. The workplace, the design of the physical workplace has been absent from that conversation. And so my argument would be, no matter what is in that top five, the physical workplace should be included because it's going to impact so many things that are key to HR. Doug, you know, it's interesting about that is um, having been in HR for a long time off and on throughout my career is HR never owned those conversations. In multiple companies that I was in, 
corporate services was, or facilities or whatever they call it in that organization owned corporate space. And HR would only get invited as necessary. And it was usually a very small part of that broader conversation. And only recently have we started to see, to see HR, some HR leaders say, hey, we need to own workspace in a different way or co-own it to be equals in this conversation. And then we've seen CHROs and CPOs elevate into the C-suite and have a seat at the table. And then a third thing that's started to pop up only since the pandemic is these new roles, like chief well-being officer or something like that. So it seems like your wish is at least trending the right direction. It it absolutely is. I would say uh, 10 years ago, we would never see an HR or very rarely see an HR person in the room when those workplace design decisions were being made. Now, it is rare that they are not in the room. So it has evolved. Um, but I still think, I still think we, we have a lot of work to do in terms of, you know, this isn't like a one-time thing like, oh, we're getting a new office. Let's design the workplace. Um, I think caring for the physical environment is, is an ongoing thing. Um, and, and continuing to evolve the physical environment is something that HR should, should always be engaged in. Doug, let's get into workplace design in the future workplace. This flows nicely right into it. Uh, we just spoke to Nick Bloom, who's a Stanford economics professor, and Fortune Magazine calls him the prophet of remote and hybrid work. And as it relates to the office, his research shows that hybrid work is here to stay. It's better for us in nearly every way, and that Fridays are dead, Mondays are on life support, and Tuesdays through Thursdays currently are a mixed bag. Right. This is very, very interesting. And so we gra- gathered two stats and a quote that we want to share with you. We just want to get your perspective on this. So first, office attendance in the 10 largest business districts, even today, is less than 50% of pre-COVID levels. Second, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce reports that 71% of builders and 68% of architects are receiving more frequent requests to convert existing office space for a different use compared to a year ago. And third is a quote, Robin Avia, a managing principal for top design firm Gensler, wrote earlier this year, quote, organizations are focused on innovation, disruption, and forward momentum. This is why we are designing adaptable spaces to facilitate experimentation, prototyping, and learning at work. Workshops and laboratories are replacing the boardroom as places where innovation is born and ideas take shape. So these are huge shifts. There's a, a big change washing over the workplace. What is the path forward and what are the new table stakes? Ooh. Well, I'll tell you that the, those last quotes about prototyping and creating spaces of adaptability, I think are absolutely key. That is the path forward. I almost feel like this, you know, when, when COVID happened and there was all this change, I feel like that was just the midterm exam. Mm-hmm. Like, like people felt like that was the Super Bowl. And it's like you know, the Super Bowl change. And, and I'm thinking, I'm looking at it like this is this is just how it's going to be. Like this, you know, we haven't even reached the final exam yet. We're still in practice mode. And so, you know, with with AI changing not just like where we work, but the way we work, we're going to reinvent our work to be more creative. It just feels like the idea of change in how we work will never stop. So 
you design a place that can support change. And that means less investment in formal structures like drywall, studs, things like that, that aren't movable and more investment in what we call soft architecture, which are you know using furniture or furniture-like solutions to create space within space. Because that's always the challenge. If you imagine... You know, you imagine just an, uh, a blank piece of paper, right? That's your that's the space that you need to support the activities of people coming together. Uh, inside of that blank paper, you can't just drop a bunch of people. You need settings. Those settings should reflect the activities that you want to happen in that space. You want social connection. You want ideation. You want areas for privacy, right? And when you start to think of settings, okay, now you can start to plan. And instead of planning with walls, you can plan with furniture now. I mean, we've been much more creative as an industry in solving this problem of more agile spaces, more flexible spaces. And so that's um, that I believe, really truly do believe, is the path forward. I also think that this idea of creativity is going to play a big role in, in how space is designed. When she said the boardroom was dead, that really sunk in. I'm like, who was ever creative in a boardroom? Mm. You know, like that was a place of intimidation. That was a place of judgment. Those are the things that fly right in the face of creativity. Like if I want people to be creative, I want to give them spaces where they are vulnerable, where they feel um, inspired to share an idea, where they feel inspired to think differently. Places with, you know, just just the just the sheer act act of including lots of textures and colors and patterns, just that alone shows that the world is a big place. And that type of environment is a place you can be creative in. That's a, one of the best ways I've heard that ever described. The boardroom was designed to intimidate people. It was designed to be opulent and, and spectacularly beautiful, but not to unlock people or help them be the best version of themselves at all. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> it, it is. I was- I would love to push in a little more on this idea of adaptable space because from the, the statistics that you just shared, Nate, from the research that we've done, it seems very clear that hybrid work is here to stay. It seems pretty clear that Mondays and Fridays will continue to be dead. Meta just took a 149 million pound loss on their new London headquarters, basically paying seven years rent in advance to cancel the launch of that. Uh, initiative. And a lot of companies that have long-term leases signed them before COVID and those leases are expired in 2026. So I'm starting to wonder like, what's going to happen here? Are you going to see companies that have their teams come in you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, then need those spaces reimagined for let's say daycare on Mondays and Fridays? Well, I think that's an excellent observation. And I don't feel like the sample size has been big enough yet. I believe that people are starting to think that way. I believe there's still experimentation around space, around privacy and security, around you know in the, the the intention of space. Like you know, do we need? Do we really just need event space so that we can have town halls and? team retreats. It's almost like the the retreat that used to be out of the office. Maybe the office is that retreat space now, you know, where, where people get together. Uh, I do think inevitably 
place does have a role and I'm not standing here trying to defend it because I sell office furniture, right? I genuinely believe that people need physical interaction. It's absolutely key to building culture and being creative and, and to even keeping people connected to something that's bigger, you know? It's just that we're still trying to figure that out. And to anybody who's feels like they've landed somewhere, like this is how we're going to use our space for the next five years. I, I, I don't think it, I don't think anyone's there. Completely agree. I want to go a little further into what you just talked about with regard to belonging, which we think is absolutely the future of work and so critically important. And you've often described OFS as a family and there's plenty of other key stakeholders within the OFS group who call it a family as well. You know that mm-hmm. we felt it firsthand. And we were with you guys at the national sales meeting in Arizona and when Nate was at Neocon in Chicago. So a lot of companies, for them, family as culture, this is lip service. But you guys have actually achieved it. Do you think that business cultures that feel like family are where we're going in the future of work? And if so, what are the pros and cons of that? I, I think every company aspires to get to that place. And it really, it, it, it is not, it is not just a leadership thing. You know, it is also, it bubbles up from below. It's everybody kind of trusting each other. And, and I would say that the key thing in that feeling of family, I'm really trying to understand like what is driving my feelings that I have. I would, I would say it is safety, safety. I am not worried about getting fired. Mm. I am not worried about my friends getting fired. I'm not worried about my friends saying something bad about me. And I don't, and I think we all feel that way. There is a sense of safety where the only rule is just do the right thing. And if you do the right thing, it doesn't matter if you screw up. It doesn't matter. You know, we're going to screw up. Like I've screwed up made mistakes, lost money, whatever. It's okay, you know, if you try to do the right thing. And I think that is the key to it. And then when everybody feels that way, then managers who are managing people, they don't feel the pressure to create a certain outcome. You know, they also can live by that same rule and then their people feel that same way. And so it really is that sense of safety that I think is at the core of it. And then what, what could go wrong? What would be the negative outcomes? That's an interesting question too. I would say that it, it does make you slow to hire. We are protective of that culture. We want to hire people that can assimilate well in that culture. I love the slow to hire point because your family is your family, right? You talked about the safety. You know, we can't fire her. That's our crazy Aunt Bernice, but she's in the family, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. So you want to kind of be mindful of how many crazy Aunt Bernices you you bring into the fold, or, yeah. or or you know, or that wild Timmy. Everybody knows about that yeah. wild Timmy, cousin you know? Timmy, cousin Timmy. The thing that I wonder about is when you talk about the safety of being in family, sometimes that safety can also mean that people don't speak hard truths. They shield people from saying the things that need to be said because it's family. Do you think that's also a potential difficulty? Oh, man. 
getting vulnerable here, but yes, it is. I think it is, it makes accountability more painful. Mm -hmm. That's the reality. It doesn't make it unachievable. It just hurts more. (laughs) It hurts more when you have to have accountability conversations. It's still doable, but yeah, that's, that's another downfall. As adults, we don't sometimes like the messy stuff. Mm-hmm. Cult, culture's messy. Family's messy, right? Because feelings are involved. And I think that's one of the things that we screwed up on in work is we've removed, you know, if you look at pre-COVID especially, you know, work, we were, we were work, work robots. We left all that other stuff behind, you know, and KPIs made things easy and less messy. But man, that's, that's not life, you know? That's, that's not life. And work is so much of our days. Like it's just, yeah, sometimes things are going to hurt. And, and that's just, I guess, part of, part of being in work and to pretend like um, that we're robots just trying to hit numbers and, you know, that makes firing easy or accountability easy. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a, a just view. Let's stay with this, Doug, and take it into that culture side. um, So you, IAP and OFS, create special experiences. It's a big part of what you do differently, your differentiator. And we think that has everything to do with the intentional approach that you all use to design a human experience. You take great care to think about that beyond the space. And at Neocon, I saw that front and center. Right? You had an award-winning space. It was beautiful and alive. And people were laughing, talking, connecting, collaborating, eating, drinking, singing, even dancing to live music. It was vibrant. And that was a stark contrast compared to other spaces. It doesn't mean the physical space wasn't beautiful, but it just didn't have the life that yours had. And it, I just was wowed by this contrast. And um, Hank, who's the CEO of OFS, said, what? you make people feel is as important as what you make. So clearly this thing you guys have built and woven into the culture is a thoughtfulness and an intentionality about how we're making people feel. Can you tell us more about kind of the roots of that in the culture of OFS and how how can other companies follow your lead? Wow. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for the comments around the Neocon space. I, I really appreciate that. It, it does come a lot from that quote. And it does come from leadership. You know, Hank cares about how his clients feel. And that, that quote can inspire a mood. It can inspire a way of carrying yourself with your colleagues, right? But then also, it does inspire what you make. Because yes, how you may be feel is more important than what you make, but what you make can also change how people feel. And, and I, I don't want to give away all the secret sauce, but <laughs> I will tell you, our, our interior designers do an amazing job. And I think as an industry, the commercial design industry that designs you know, commercial spaces like healthcare spaces, workspaces, education, I think sometimes we like to stick our nose up to interior decoration, which is kind of a, a smaller subset of interior design, right? Which design is 
is much more bigger picture and there's so much more involved science, it's math, it's art, it's all this stuff. Um, but well, where would where would where would your office be without these plants behind you? Doug? The plants, <laughs> the touches, yeah, all all of that stuff. That is like that creates mood. You know, it yeah. creates a feeling. And if if you've ever chopped around for kindergarten classrooms and, and you walk in there, space is like full of color and there's like weather maps on the wall and like all this cool stuff, you know, and then there's some spaces that are just stripped of all that. And they're really not putting themselves in the shoes of that child who's going to be in this classroom. And, and you can feel totally different in two types of spaces, despite the, the effort that the people are putting in. A uh, quick story on that, Doug, is uh, when I was at Oppenheimer Funds, uh, there was a wing of the building that was gray cubes. And as far as you could see was gray cubes and the walls were white, right? There was like, it was devoid of anything lifelike. And everybody just was going through the motions. And um, our team was the strategy and innovation team. And we noticed that there was no place to tell stories or to ideate or to prototype or anything. And so this one section of the building, we talked to, interestingly, the facilities team, who was corporate services. HR was devoid of the conversation because they weren't in those conversations. But um, we said to them, we want to clear out this space. We want to repaint the walls with some color. We want to put some cork board on the walls where you can interact with the wall dynamically. We need some, some whiteboards that roll around. We want some power drops from this. We want to open this entire space up. And we put a custom-made wooden um, eight-foot-long table right in the center. And one of the people on the team just said, let's put a bowl of apples right in the center. But just things that had never existed before. And designers, please forgive me if all this sounds ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not a designer. But what I do know is that um, people started coming up to us in this space and having emotional reactions. Like completely unbeknownst to us, started crying and saying, how did you do this? How did you wow. do this? And that was the first time I went, what you're talking about, it creates a mood, it creates a feeling. People were bursting with desire to be in this space because they've been trapped for so long in that other space you described. Depressing. <laughs> it's depressing. It makes such a difference. Just, yeah, the conversations that have been had at that table uh, because of you, because of you pushing for that, is, it's, it's probably, you know, maybe there's four or five people that didn't quit their jobs. I mean, how much is that worth? And it inspired a whole group of people to go, well, if that can be done over there in that wing, then why can't we? And so this ripple effect happened where the head of facilities is like, you guys don't know what you started. And we were like, <laughs> in the best way, in the best right. way. Right. <laughs> I want to move from business wisdom, workplace wisdom, and design wisdom and into podcast wisdom. Now you've hosted 143 podcast. That's a ton. And you're constantly talking to thinkers, doers, and thought leaders. What are some of the most impactful pearls of wisdom or pieces of advice that you've taken away from these experiences? I absolutely love this question. And my, my pearls of wisdom that I've taken away are maybe not what you think, uh, but, but you two do this so well. Okay. I've had um, probably of the 143 com conversations that are published, I probably had 200 conversations recorded. Wow. Yeah. And I will speak to experts, you know, of something very specific, right? The world's most 
important airport expert. It doesn't matter as much what they're saying. What matters is how they're saying it. You know, I get the metrics. I analyze how much of a podcast people listen to and, and which ones they listen to. And at the end of the day, the most attractive thing about a guest is whether they give a damn. Hmm. That's it. Are they passionate about what they're talking about? And so I began to look into that. And there's these, these three numbers. I think it's like 55, 38, and 7. And that's, that's the numbers of communication. So 55% of what you feel for me is coming from nonverbal communication. Since this is a podcast, strip that away. Really, almost everything you feel for me is how I say what I'm saying. Because think of it, you could say the word thank you and you could say it in different tones and it means something totally different like thank you or thank you, right? So different, same words. And what I find is I sometimes get guests that are so focused on what they're saying that they forget uh, about all the heart behind it because they're just trying to pick the right words. And, and so that to me has been one of my greatest lessons is to simply trust that my intentions are good and speak from the heart and not worry so much about what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get some things wrong, but if I mean well and I speak from the heart, that's really all people want to hear. They don't want to hear, you know, a calculator. And so that's, that's it. Um, that, that I would say has been one of the most important lessons. And then I would say that the, the second lesson is that everyone wants the same thing. Everyone wants to be validated. And I, you know, I actually heard this the first time I heard this and it stuck in my brain. This was, this was like decades ago. This is Oprah's last episode. And when Oprah was asked to reflect on her interviews, um, she said, every interview ended the same way. And it was, was that okay? She said, I could be speaking to a criminal that was behind bars. I could be speaking to the president of the United States. And it ended with, was that okay? And it is the same exact way in the podcasting world. I'm sure that both of you know. Yes. And really what that means is... Did you hear me? Did what I say matter? And so when you listen with the idea of validating in mind, that has absolutely changed the way I listen. And so now I know, I understand that is like the cheat code. Everyone wants validation. Doesn't matter who they are. And if you think you're too small to offer validation to someone who maybe you think is unattainable, I would say you're wrong. Everyone wants it. Whether, you know, if you're 22 years old, and you're intimidated to speak to a CEO, you can go up to her and say, I loved your article, or you did great. You know, it, you, know you, can, you can always give that compliment, and it'll always be received. So what you do that Alex and I have personally experienced is you create that same level of safety that you all care so much about at OFS in Imagine a Place, in the podcast with the guests, so that when Alex and I were on your show talking, you were filling us with safety that was letting us know it's okay for you to say whatever you need to say here. And we went for it because you <laughs> created that. You created well, I, that. I appreciate that. Can I also just plug that episode? Because that episode was magic. That episode was an absolute pivotal episode in Imagine a Place. It's hands down a fan favorite. 
so I, I just, I, I, I don't know the number and what, what it is, but, but the disrupted workforce episode on Imagine a Place has just been absolutely smashing it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So I just want to build on this a little bit because we think that curiosity and compassion are superpowers of yours, my friend. So where did you learn those beyond the podcast and how do you keep them at the forefront of your life? Wow. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I'm, I'm proud. I feel proud that you said that. So thank you. Wow. Where, where does it come from? I am the son of a scientist and a teacher. So, you know, you've got the curiosity and the compassion right there. So that mm-hmm. feels like a natural fit. Um, just having watched my parents and, and kind of heard them. But I will tell you, hosting a podcast has been the best exercise for that muscle, for both muscles, really. And I'm sure you understand, like, you know, com- compassion, probably one of the most sincere expressions of compassion is listening. And I think that that is a muscle that I have not always been great at. But yeah, I, I will I will say that you don't need to host a podcast to do that. To have a conversation, you don't have to hit record. In fact, you'll probably have more authentic conversations, deeper conversations by not hitting record. Um, I, had a, I had a friend of mine who was kind of in the podcast world. Joe Ferraro is his name. And he said, you know, Everybody says they want podcasts. They want their podcasts to sound like conversations. He said, I think it's the other way around. I think we should be having more conversations that are good enough to be podcasts. Mm, I was like, oh, that's that's good. And it's true. There's a lot of surface level conversation. And I I will also say one of the things I've learned is I, I I don't need to small talk. And no one else does either. Like, If you want to ask a big question, you can just ask it to anyone. And uh, I think people will appreciate it. That's courage. That's moving through life with courage, right? Being one of the few people who's willing to ask a candid question, a thoughtful question, a deeper question, a beautiful question. Yes. 100%. Doug, we are going to take you into a speed round to wrap things up. So we're going to ask you five quick questions and try to answer them in a minute or less. Got it. You earned the nickname Butter. <laughs> Can you tell us the story behind this? <laughs> oh, this was at the national sales meeting. Uh, apparently, <laughs> you were both there for that. <laughs> you, by the way, you you did awesome as our keynote at the national sales meeting. If you're listening to this podcast and you're looking for a keynote, Nate and Alex, home run. I'll leave that in there. Uh, but yeah, the 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 note. <laughs> Uh, the the butter was just a reference from one of the presenters, uh, and they were referring to my voice, which you know, <laughs> it's <laughs> I t- co- coaching coaching when it, when basketball season starts and I and I start coaching the kids, you know, I lose some of that butter quality. But you know, so far I'm doing all right. As a podcaster, interviewer, and extrovert, you're a relationships guy. Where do you meet your edges in personal and professional relationships? What's hard for you? Oh, I tell you right now, travel is hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I find myself, if it's more than two nights, three nights, I hit a wall and I become less social and I just want to get home. And I, it's, I'm, I'm, I want to, there's an expression, be where you are. I really want to do that, but I can only do that for like three days tops. So mm-hmm. that, that's my wall. That's my edge. Ditto there. 
who is your dream podcast interview? I mean, the like if you got the best hit ever, the best fish you caught, who is it? Oh, you know, I have been deep into sports psychology lately. I just love the thinking behind it. I would have to go after a coach. I would go after a coach, maybe Coach K. Mm. Doug, my sense of you is that you're a generally agreeable, go with the flow kind of person. What's one thing that absolutely drives you nuts? Um, I can tell you something I do that drives other people nuts, which is, uh, you know, my optimism can sometimes be annoying because optimism leads me to believe that things aren't easy to get done, right? Why don't we just do this? Like real quick, we could be done in two weeks, right? But then all the people that are going to be affected by something like a, like a rash decision like that are like, yeah. you know, like, come Thank, on, you know? Thanks, dog. Thanks, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I would say sometimes my optimism gets in the way. All right. This year, you co-authored a children's book with Maria Van Diemen called Design Your World. What was the spark behind? I mean, you could have done anything and you wrote a children's book. There had to have been some spark there that connects to this broader mission. There was a spark. Um, so we participate in a pipeline program called Design Your World, which is meant to expose youth to a career in design, but specifically minorities, because the career of interior design is not a diverse community as it stands today. We're working to change that so that the, the, the profession of design is designing. It looks like the people it's designing for, essentially, right? I mean, that's, mm. that's the, what we need to get, uh, get to. And so writing that book was about creating representation, right? Exposing, exposing youth to a career in design. Everybody knows about architecture, but little, you know, very few actually know that you can make a career in interior design and you can impact just as many people, if not more. Um, so that was a part of it. But then also the second thing was learning how, how design can give someone control in their life. And I would say this is a lesson that is not just for kids. I'm going over your minute, Alex, but it's worth it. This is a lesson that's for anyone, which is if you know a kid, they don't choose who they sit next to at school. They don't choose what they eat. They don't choose what they get to wear. Oftentimes they feel like they have no control. But if they have a bedroom or a place or a bed or whatever it is that's theirs, they can control that environment. They can clean it. They can let the sunlight in. They can bring in plants. They can decorate the walls. They can make a cool little meeting space. They can do whatever they want in that space. And once a kid understands that, they realize, wow, I have control over something. And that can be a very powerful feeling. And so that is something that we can all do. So if you're in a home office and you're just feeling the drudgery as you've walked to that place for the fifth day in a row now, and it's Friday, take four hours, work on that space, design it, bring in some life and some energy. You'll be so much better for it. Doug, thank you for your buttery softness, <laughs> for being the emotional security blanket that we all turn to in times of darkness. And for being incredibly tall and yet not intimidating. More importantly, thank you for the care and consideration you give to the critical topics on your podcast, insights, and work. You help create safety 
and belonging where there is none and help us all imagine a place, a better world for ourselves, our colleagues, and the people we care about. And last but not least, thank you for being such a terrific friend to us, to TDW, and someone who inspires us, we learn from. I am absolutely honored. Thank you, Alex. I'm a big fan of you both and just so honored to be on here with you. Thank you, Doug. What's the best place to read more about what you're up to and connect with you? I would say LinkedIn. That's where I'll be most active. So I'm easy to find there. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future. Thank you.